Uh, today we're reading from Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a con convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, thanks, Megan and uh, Mike, for that reading. It's going to come out in the grass here. Good morning. Who can feel their toes? Because um, I can't. And uh, my, I've been, I'm, a, I'm a feet tapper anyway during worship, but I've been like double time tapping today. Like my feet have been kind of going. Uh, look, uh, you know, years ago in the UK, the monasteries, well, and even still today, actually, across the world, they get up at like 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, imagine in England, Scotland at 5 a.m. for prayers every morning, um, you know, with, with no kind of modern heating or stuff that we have. So, look, I shouldn't complain. And I'm not complaining that the heaters aren't on. It's just wrong. All right. Well, Bernie Madoff was founder and chairman of one of the largest investment firms in the USA. Um, he was also chairman of the NASDAQ um, stock index and stock exchange. He was a powerful leader in the financial sector. In 2008, he confessed to his two sons that he'd been running a Ponzi scheme. You know a Ponzi scheme? It's basically a, it's a deceitful way of getting people to invest money um, and giving them returns, but actually, eventually, the people that come in later end up with nothing and in this case, most people ended up with nothing. The whole thing collapsed. Uh, he was arrested by the FBI, jailed for 150 years. Uh, he, he was in his 80s. Uh, in 2021, he died. He was a leader who did a lot of damage. Uh, Queen Mary I, or you might know her as Bloody Mary, um, which gives you an indication of um, where we're going with her story, she was a Catholic queen of England from 1553. She was just there for five years. She announced a war against Protestantism and was responsible for burning at the stake at least 300 Protestant um, Christians. Very poor leadership indeed by Queen Mary. Theoneste Bagasorda was retired colonel and chief of staff in Rwanda's defence ministry. When in April 
1994, he gave the order to implement a long-standing plan to exterminate the country's Tutsi minority. They were the Hutus, the Tutsis were the minority in Rwanda. 100 days later, around 800,000 people had been murdered. 800,000. One of the most extensive mobilizations of a population against its fellow citizens that the world has ever seen. He was sentenced by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda to prison. He died in 2021. A wicked and cruel leader. So leadership. We know bad leadership when we see it. We know how damaging, bad, corrupt, deceitful, wicked leadership can be to the human community. But the alternative to no leadership is anarchy and chaos. And God has so ordained in common grace across the world, in human communities, you find it in indigenous nations all around the world, you know, thousands of years ago, they had leadership structures, ways of organizing and looking after their people and moving forward and surviving. Leadership is God's gift to humanity in a general sense. And in the church, God has also given leadership to the church community uh, to help and support it in its mission. And we see that in the reading today from Acts chapter 6. Um, the clear thing that I see from this text is in the New Testament, there is no church, there was no church without leadership of some sort. A Jesus-shaped church is a church with leadership. Now, who's a leader here? Put your hand up if you're a leader. Okay. Now, I want everyone to put their hand up. Who's a leader? I'll say it again. Who's a leader? Put your hand up and I'll tell you why. Everyone put your hand up. Okay. If you don't think you're a leader, I'm sorry at this early stage in the sermon to inform you that you're incorrect, <laughs> but you are. Um, you are a leader because you're leading your own life. Yeah, right? You, you're leading your life. Well, who? Well, yeah, no, Julie. You're giving away the thunder. Julie, 100 points to Julie. Jesus is the real leader. She's le he's leading our life. Yeah, no, Julie's right. We are, we are under the leader of the Lord Jesus for sure. But, you know, take it down. Jesus didn't decide probably what you had for breakfast this morning, um, what you wore, <laughs> you know, what shoes you're going to put on, uh, what time you got up. These things, we're leading our own lives. So we, we are leading ourselves. If you're a parent, you're a leader. Um, if, you're, if you're married, you're a leader. If you're single, you're still a leader. You've got to lead your own life. Um, everyone has to lead themselves. So we lead in different ways. You're in a workplace, perhaps you have a position where you lead others, you oversee others. So we're all kind of leaders at one level. So let's have a quick look at leadership, how some people have defined leadership in the world. W.H. Prentice, uh, an early writer on modern leadership theory, said, it is the accomplishment of a goal through the direction of human assistance. Take it or leave it. Peter Drucker, a management guru, he wrote, the only definition of a leader is someone who has followers. The only definition of a leader is someone who has followers. John Maxwell, a leadership guru, but a Christian one um, in, in his writings, he says, leadership is influence. Nothing more, 
and nothing less. Now, there's something to like about all those definitions. There's something to contest with them, I think, too, which I won't get into. But um, the Christian Leadership Center at Andrews University in America has this statement on leadership, specifically Christian leadership. It's a dynamic relational process which people, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, partner to achieve a common goal. Leadership is serving others by leading and leading others by serving. Serving others by leading, got that Sam? Serving others by leading and leading others by serving. Um, One other author has said this about leadership, I like this one. Leadership is God-ordained and a gift to society and the church to provide stability, security, structure and direction by serving people and God's ultimate purposes for humanity. That was um, N. Tui, I don't know who he is, but... Um, the New Testament places a very high value on leaders. Um, it also says that leaders will be held accountable for their leadership. So there's a high level of um, value placed on leaders, but there's also a warning that leaders, you'll be held accountable for what you teach, what you do um, as a leader. So in Hebrews 13, it says, have, have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account to God for their leadership. Do this so that their work will be a joy. Amen. Not a burden. Amen. For that would be of no benefit to you. And uh, Paul says to Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church or the leaders um, are, who do it well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And again, there's a warning in those letters too around leadership that Um, it's a relationship with people Um, leaders will be held accountable for that they'll be judged more firmly by God for that um, but also for the people to work together with the leaders in the church for God's purposes now in this text in Acts chapter 6 let's have a look at it Uh, I think it's important to to focus on this little section it's an interesting section Uh, it's it's a little bit of a um, you know bad news story for the church it's a bit of dirty laundry being aired here there were some problems in the church early on now we're surprised by this i know we're like i cannot believe that there was a time when the church community um, had problems when they grumbled and argued together uh, when they didn't get on uh, when they just got their eyes off the prize they've been given the greatest biggest mission in the history of the universe and here they are squabbling about food Can you imagine that there was a time when the church did things like that? I know it's hard for us to believe today. I get that. But apparently there was because it's in the Bible. So let's have a look at it. What was going on here? What was happening in this story? Um, and, And what was the situation? So in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. So the church was growing. So they had the problem of their their structures. You know, like if you're a baby like Henry, your skeleton is so big, right? But if you want to grow big, like tall like me, you need a different skeleton. You need a different structure. And it was the same for the early church. Their structure, their skeleton was for this many people, but they were growing. And so they needed to change the structure of the church to accommodate the growth. Or else they could just say, get lost, everyone. We don't want you. We're just staying as we are. They could have said that, but they didn't. But there's a problem that arises here, and it's really interesting. The, the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews... So it was like Greeks versus the Hebrews. 
uh, the women in the church. It could have been the men, by the way. There's nothing gender-specific about conflict. But in this case, it was the women. And they, they were arguing together around the distribution of food. Now, what does that mean? It seems to mean this, that the early church was starting to set up welfare networks because there were none in the Roman Empire. And just for the sake of it, the church set them up throughout most of uh, history of the world. Um, that's where a lot of our welfare networks come from in the West, from the church. So they were setting them up and they were distributing food each day for those in need. If you're a widow in that culture and society, it wasn't like today where you, you might have a pension fund, you might have... Um, uh, Centrelink, you know, all sorts of benefits coming your way to help you live. If you're a widow without a male son or a husband, if you didn't have a senior male in your life, you were vulnerable, you were at risk for all sorts of problems and trouble, and you were in great danger. So the church reached out and was supporting widows, uh, was helping them. And the word that's used could mean that there was food being distributed, but also finance. That the word that's used could be read in two different ways, that they were actually providing financial assistance and food, both or one or the other, to widows. And there was an argument among them that the, the Jewish widows, um, the Greek widows, sorry, felt they were being overlooked. That this is really interesting because the church was primarily Jewish. Like our church is primarily Anglo, right? So the church had a monoculture in its early days. It was primarily Jewish. All the early Christians were Jews. And so these Greek-speaking Jews, they were people from the outer edges of, of Judea, lived in other nations. Sometimes widows, when their husband died, would come back to Jerusalem. They wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. So there could have been a lot of Greek widows who'd been living in all sorts of parts of the empire. So there was a cultural difference there. And the Greek speaking widows who were still jews but greek speaking they felt they were being a bit sidelined that they weren't being paid attention to like the jewish widows were the the jew the hebrew speaking widows so there was a conflict emerging and they were grumbling and the word that's used there they were grumbling is the word the same word that's used in the old testament when the israelites grumble in the desert against the manna and the quails and stuff that grumbling and it in the Old Testament, it really upset God when his people grumble. And it's a really cool Greek word. I hope to introduce a Greek word every time I preach to you. This Greek word is gongusmu. And it's an onomatopatic word. So it's a word that sounds like what it describes. Gongusmu. So say that over and over. Gongusmu, gongusmu, Sounds like grumbling, right? So it's like these people are gongusmu. They were grumbling and it's a it's a word that sounds like what it means so anyway what the, this is the first thing that the leaders of the church do is they confront problems they don't just ignore it they don't just sweep it under the carpet the, the apostles confront the problem and so they say to the church look we've got to do something about this um, we've got to deal with this situation I've said this, the big issue wasn't that there was conflict. It's not surprising that when groups of people get together with different cultural groups, different sorts of people start to come together as a family, the church, it's not surprising that there's problems, right? That's not the surprise. That wasn't the threat that there was a conflict or a problem. That wasn't the big threat to the church. The big issue wasn't that there was conflict, but that the conflict threatened the mission 
And that was the potential disaster. The church had been given the greatest mission ever given to any organization in the history of the whole world, and here it was threatened by imploding around this issue. So they had to deal with it. They had to sort it out. So firstly, leaders, if you're a leader of your own life, a leader of your family, a leader in your workplace, a leader in the church, leaders confront problems, not people. They confronted the problem, not the people. So they confronted the issue, they brought it out, and so what do they do then? The second thing leaders do is they seek solutions. Leaders seek solutions. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, and they said, look, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, the, the preaching of God's word, the, the expanding of, of his teaching to the people, discipling people around the word, preaching the gospel into the community. It's not right for us to neglect that to wait on tables. It wasn't that that work was beneath them. That wasn't their calling. They weren't called as the leaders of the church community to focus all their attention and time on that stuff. So they say, brothers and sisters... Choose seven men from among you. Okay, it was men. It was a fairly patriarchal culture, just like in our indigenous culture. For thousands of years, men in those tribes were the leaders. Um, that's just how it was then. Um, they chose seven men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And it says, we'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to what? To prayer and the ministry of the word. I said, if we get away from prayer as leaders... If we lose that, if we drop that ball, if we get away from the word being central in our church and the mission moving forward, we're lost, we're gone. So in like, let's say it was a Tuesday, the structure of the church looked like this, and then from here on Wednesday, they changed the structure. So it wasn't like set in concrete. It wasn't like Jesus had handed down this concrete picture of the church once and for all. No, they were able to move it and shape it to address the issues and the situation. So that's what the church does. They get together um, and they pick out seven people. And they kind of go, yeah, Stephen's a, Stephen's a great man, faith. He's a godly man. Yeah, Philip, he's wise. He's smart. He's, he's got runs on the board. Let's pick him. And they, they pick out seven people. But they're qualified people. It's not just, oh, but it's Bob's turn, right? You've, had, you've been doing it for like years. It's his turn. Like, or my brother. You know, um, it's not a you know, family thing or whatever. They're just looking for people. Who's capable? Who's, who, who's responsible? Who's got the capacity to do this? And so they select these seven people. They bring them to the apostles. And then they, they commission them. Um, I think what you see here, the leaders of the church at the time, the apostles initiate and propose a solution but they invite the church to participate in the process see there's a there's a genuine relationship here between leadership and, and people mind you um i would say it, we're not sure how they how they decided did they have a vote did everyone you know give all their questions to the apostles to work through their issues i don't i'm not sure we we aren't told but somehow the congregation, I would think if you go back to last week, they would have prayed. They prayed when they appointed Matthias to replace Judas. They prayed all the time. I think they would have prayed together and people would have started putting up names. And so they, they addressed this issue. And I'll just give you three quick things about church governance structures, why there's three main structures of church governance in the world today. Um, I'll tell you what they are and then tell you why I think there's three. There's Episcopal, 
which is like a bishop-led church, like there's a, a senior leader over a group of churches, Episcopal. There's Presbyterian. Presbyterian, which is an elder-led council of elders who govern the church and lead the church. Then there's us. What are we? Congregational. There's us. And the reason there's three is because faithful, godly Christian scholars over centuries have read the New Testament and gone, we can find all those three models in the New Testament. And that's why there's three. Personally, I like congregational for a number of reasons I won't go into. But I will read a couple of things about congregational government. Um, firstly, from Dr. Brian Winslade, former National Director of the Baptist Union of Australia, Deputy Secretary, 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 Gone Guzmu, Secretary, <laughs> Secretary General. I stopped there because Amanda's, Amanda really knows, how do you say Secretary? That, how do you say it? No, there's like two ways of saying it. Secretary and Secretary. Anyway. He works for the World Evangelical Alliance in some role of leadership. This is what he says about congregational government. Some have viewed congregationalism or congregational government as implying that every decision a church makes should be subject to or deliberated on by every member at a duly constituted members meeting. That would be a denial of biblical teaching on different spiritual gifts across the body of Christ and upon the place of respect with which leaders are to be held. Congregational government does not mean an absence of leadership. Leaders are gifts to the church, and as well as holding them accountable, we need to hold our leaders accountable, we need to honour them and respect the work that they do for the good of the church and the kingdom. And Dr. Paul Borden, a Baptist pastor and author in America, says, we must get away from the notion in congregational life, and both these men strongly agree and support congregational government, not Presbyterian, not Episcopal, we must get away from the notion in congregational life that everyone has an equal say. Everyone has an equal standing before God in Jesus Christ. However, the right to speak and influence congregational life and behavior should be granted in proportion to one's maturity as a disciple and one's ministry as a servant. So leaders and the church work together in respect and unity to seek God's will and further the mission of Jesus on earth. And that's what we see here. So leaders confront problems, leaders initiate and seek solutions. And thirdly, leaders empower and equip other people. That's what happens here. The proposal pleased the whole group. I mean, if it didn't please the whole group, they would have let them know, right? And then they would have had to come up with another proposal. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. I love it when your name's in the Bible. From Antioch. Because there's also the Nicolaitans in Revelation and they were a heretical group. And sometimes I get associated with them, but I'm with this Nicholas. Um, he was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles and they prayed for them and laid their hands on them, kind of commissioned them um, into their leadership roles. The church receives a proposal from the leadership. It considers it by prayer, no doubt, as a Jesus-shaped church is a church of prayer. And then they participate in selecting these seven new leaders in the church. Now, very interestingly, the names of those seven men, do you know what's interesting about them? They're all Greek names. <laughs> Paul, we're not going into my big fat Greek wedding here, okay? I should let you know that uh, as half my family is Greek, my big fat Greek wedding for most people is a comedy. When I watched it, it was like a documentary. 
Um, it, it is. For Greek people, it's like a documentary. But um, the reason it's important that they're all Greek names is because of what I just said before. There was an imbalance in the church. There was primarily, probably mostly Hebraic Jews, and the Greek Jews were a minority. And so isn't it interesting the church said, we need to balance this out. We need more representation from, I mean, the Greeks, they've got the problem there. The Greek Jews are upset. The Greek women are upset that they're being overlooked and the, the Hebraic Jews are being favoured. And so here they appoint seven people, the whole church together, the Jewish Jews and the Greek Jews, and they pick seven Greek men to fill that leadership gap. There were 12 Jewish, Hebraic Jewish apostles, well, 11, 12, when Matthias came. And so isn't it interesting how they did that? Now, just quickly, let's look at Philip and Stephen. We know a little bit about two of those names. Stephen was a man full of grace, of, of God's grace and power. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Performed great wonders and signs among the people. And then eventually Stephen um, was put to death. He was the first martyr of the church. And the apostle Paul oversaw um, his death. Philip went down to the city in Samaria, this is Acts chapter 8, proclaimed the Messiah there. So Philip was an evangelist, a preacher. He was out on an itinerant ministry. He, he wasn't necessarily just you know, at the church community helping with, with day-to-day stuff. He was out there doing mission. And uh, they, lots of people came to Christ through Philip's ministry. Um, so leaders confront problems. Leaders initiate and propose solutions. Leaders empower and equip others. And finally, leaders are qualified to serve. The apostle said, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So it wasn't a case of, oh, it's Bob's turn or it's Gene's turn. No, no. Look around the congregation and pick people who have a record of godliness and maturity, who have some wisdom and some understanding of of life and how things work. Um, Look at their character and they're the people... We want you to appoint to leadership. So leaders are qualified. Now, that's hard because you've got to start somewhere as, as a leader and, and we have pathways and tracks in church communities and the Christian world of, of helping people grow in leadership within the church. But um, in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, you'll see a whole range of qualifications there for elders and deacons. And I'll just read, as I've researched that and studied that over the years, Here's my sum of what the qualifications are for Christian leadership. Leaders are called to uphold the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Leaders are called to proclaim Jesus, to make Jesus the center, to make sure he is the center of the church and of our lives. Leaders are called to preach and teach the truth, to oppose false doctrine and teachers. They are called to pray, to promote unity, love and care in the church. Leaders are called to suffer. If you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, leaders are called to suffer. Leaders offer leadership. They lead. Leaders train members in discipleship. Leaders have faith and hold to the faith and are faithful. Now, of course, apart from God's grace and power, who is up to this level of leadership? I mean, who who can do this? Like, you know, it's just too much. There's so many times in my life... As a pastor, where quietly I've prayed and said, Lord, get someone else. I, <laughs> I can't do this. You know, I'm not up to this. It's too much. I can't do it, Lord. It's just too much. And then times, I don't want to do it, Lord. Um, and then other times, I love doing this, Lord. So there's a whole range. But there's that sense of, I'm not worthy. I'm not 
qualified? I mean, Lord, if you have someone else more qualified or better, please get them. And then it comes down to that sense of just saying, Lord, if you've called me to do this, if you've asked me to do this, if this is the calling you've given me in my life, you'll give me what I need. I can trust you. Like Moses said, Lord, I can't speak. I'm not a good speaker. He said, shut up. I'll get Aaron to help you. Um, that's my paraphrase of the Exodus calling of Moses. So God, you, know, you can give God as many excuses as you want, but eventually it just comes down to, Lord, if you're calling me to do this, if you want me to step into this, if you're, I'll do it because I know you'll give me what I need. So what about you and your life? As a, as a person leading your own life, as someone in marriage, in parenting children, someone in a workplace, a community situation where you're leading others, um, let's just sum up. Um, are you confronting problems and threats? Are you taking them seriously? Are you initiating ideas and solutions or just complaining and grumbling? Are you empowering and equipping others to help and participate? Are you seeking wisdom, support and experience to grow more qualified as a leader? So look at the final result of what, what happens. They, they get through this and look at what happens in verse 7. So the word of God spread. Okay, It starts with the church is growing, the word of God is spreading. They have this conflict, this potential threat that's going to destabilize the church. They say, let's deal with it. Let's get a solution. They sort it out and look what happens. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And even a large number of priests, Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith, became believers in Jesus. So that not that a great model for the church? Like they hit a roadblock, they hit an issue, they don't get bogged down in it for ages and ages and ages. They deal with it, they sort it out, they change the structure, and then they move forward with the mission. And that's powerful. And I'll, I'll finish with what Dr. Brian Winslade, Secretary of the Evangelical World Alliance, former National Director of the Baptist Union of Australia, once said a few years ago, and I love it, we are first and foremost an evangelistic movement, that's Baptist churches, committed to helping unsaved people find saving faith through per personal connection with Jesus Christ. Our polity and systems of organisation, our church governance, are not unimportant but they are nowhere near as important as our commitment to mission. Our polity, our church structures, serve this greater purpose, not the other way around. If the way we organize ourselves and do what we've always done is getting in the way of our primary mission purpose, for goodness sake, change the way we do things. This is not just mere pragmatism. This is a fundamental of being on mission. Jesus did not die on the cross in order to create an egalitarian democratic system of decision making. He came that sinners might be saved to declare the kingdom of God has come to earth. That is our primary purpose. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so he now sends us. May it be that we are the most renowned in the future for how we proclaim the gospel, less about how we make internal church decisions. Let me pray as the team comes up. Father, we thank you for the early church. Thank you for the, the humility of, of Luke, of, of letting us see into this, 
little difficult time in the church where there was conflict and grumbling and problems. Thank you that we get to see that, that it's okay. We're not perfect. Uh, We have tensions and troubles when we gather together in community as your people. But Lord, thank you too for the way that they dealt with it. The way that the leaders led, proposed solutions and initiated uh, ideas. The way that people responded and prayed and, and discussed and thought together and came up with seven godly leaders to take the church forward. Thank you for the way that leaders and people work together to resolve these matters quickly and swiftly so that the mission, the primary calling of the church to make Jesus known was not thwarted and not destabilized. Father, let us hear this this morning for our church. Let us hear it, Lord, that we too would be so heart-focused, so zealous, so committed to your mission that we would do what it takes. We would make the changes, do what needs to be done, to resolve any issues, any matters, any problems that arise and to move forward with your work. Father, bless the leaders in our church, I pray. And actually, I might just get them to stand up now. If you're a leader in this church community, could you stand up, please? Uh, In any capacity, small group, youth group, worship leading, any ministry, can you please stand up? And I'll get everyone else to stand up and just place your hands around. If you're comfortable being that close to people, just place a hand on them. And let me lead us in prayer for the leaders of our church community. Um, And then we'll sing and worship together. Father, we want to thank you for this church community. Lord, thank you for the people who planted this church 150 years ago. Thank you for all of the pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, Sunday school leaders, youth leaders, worship leaders, all sorts of leaders down through the ages, Lord, who have served this church community. Thank you for giving this church the leadership that it needs. Thank you for providing it with leaders to serve and to lead the mission of Jesus forward into the community. Lord, we commission and commend our leaders afresh to you. Pray your blessing on them, God. Leadership is difficult. Uh, Leadership is challenging. Leadership comes with extra accountability to you, Father. So bless them, Lord. Give them courage and um, bless their hearts lord where they're weary lord where they're tired fill them afresh lord with your holy spirit and bless them and renew them in faith and love for you jesus help them know that the extra work they're doing the extra loads that they're bearing uh, are going to produce fruit and and bear fruit for your kingdom so father we pray that you would bless our leaders in this church community strengthen them god encourage their hearts jesus This is not an easy time for the church moving forward. So, Lord, continue to strengthen our leaders. Bring unity in a greater measure, love and peace in our community, Father God. Bless our church to serve your mission, we pray, so that your amazing grace that we experience, that we know, that we celebrate each week, that we can share that amazing grace into a broken, hurting world. Father God, there are many people, many, many people, thousands in the Adelaide Hills who are without hope, who are without the light of the gospel, who are without the love of God in their lives and their hearts, who are dead in their sins and who need the life that only Christ can bring. Use our church, Lord. Use our church. Continue to use our church as you have done for 150 years to bring the good news of Jesus to this community and beyond. We pray in your great name. Amen.